I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Hey Jason, hi everyone. Welcome back. It's Monday again. <laughs> Yay. Week three of season two. Um, Yay, I'm so glad we're still going, <laughs> going strong. So, well, I hope you all enjoyed the second episode with Anthony Lowenstein, which we released last week. And hopefully you had some time to reflect a little bit on the role that investigative journalism and journalism in general has on the way we think about disasters and how it impacts us as the audiences. Today, we're going to be discussing again how disasters do not affect people equally. That is how risk is distributed unevenly based on social preconditions. And the focus today um, in this episode is the experience of risk and disaster impacts by LGBTQI communities who are often rendered invisible by those in power. And so personally, I realize just how unqualified I am to speak to these issues um, that we're going to cover today. But there's so much potential for learning as we unpack the subject. I'm really excited about um, doing this. So today we're really, really pleased to have Darren Alexander-Williams with us on the show. So Darren is completing a PhD in urban planning at MIT currently, and his research is focusing on disaster recovery, community organizing and marginalized population. So Darian is currently working on a few projects, which I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit more about as we speak. And the projects are including um, Floridian hurricane recovery, natural gas, pipeline explosions, religious organizations and planning, and also HIV AIDS geographies projects that we really look forward to hearing about. Uh, Darian previously worked on the Southeastern and Caribbean Disaster Recovery Partnership and Hurricane Matthew Disaster Recovery and Resilience Initiative. Wow, welcome Darian. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show, Ksenia and Jason. I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, also, I neglected to mention earlier, um, I am an alum of University of Florida, and I really love Gainesville. So oh. I am very happy to be on the show with another Gator. Wow. I, yeah, I'm a, a recent um, addition to the Gator family, and uh, that's exciting. I didn't even know that, Darren. That's great. Wow. Um, so thanks so much for being with us. Um, I really do enjoy following your Twitter feed. And I think uh, it's fair to say that you bring a bit of a radical approach to disaster research. Um, so maybe you could tell us uh, a bit about what your main intellectual influences are and how that shapes your work. Um, sure. I. So I, maybe, I don't know, I have like a shout out sort of list in mind perpetually okay um so locally uh i'm really really inspired by the work of erica james um who does uh, who's an anthropologist kind of newly in the urban planning uh space asking questions about like rights and trauma and different ways things that we assume to be static for everyone in disaster are like kind of suspended a little bit um, and Babak Manush Rafar, who uh, consistently pushes me to think about and write about really weird things. And Fiola Jacobs, who recently came out with a paper on the importance of including Black feminism and Black feminist approaches in radical planning. 
Um, Andrea Roberts' work also influences me. And I think for today's conversation, Andrew Whittemore's work on LGBT space creation in the South is one of the things that got me interested in like pursuing a graduate education and asking some of these questions. Um, and I'm really grateful to eventually become friends with him after encountering his work. So that's what, that's what brings me into this moment. You said you have ended up writing weird things. So tell us uh, a bit more <laughs> about your ongoing work and what kind of things you um, are exploring. <laughs> yeah. Um, so most of my work um, has been in just disaster recovery um, and specifically hurricane disaster recovery. So uh, I, um, I'm at MIT in Massachusetts now, but before this I was in North Carolina um, and I started a program there at the exact moment that Hurricane Matthew hit us. Um, and that sort of brought me into this space of like learning about disaster in the classroom, but also joining with some quasi public planning organizations to link up with small towns thinking through disaster recovery. Most of these small towns were either majority black or majority uh, indigenous or native. Um, and so as a result, sort of the issues of identity, of blackness, of different kinds of relationships with land, uh, mm -hmm. came up in these conversations, uh, in ways that it didn't come up in the classroom. Um, and so I, I would say right now I am finishing up, uh, a project relating to Hurricane Michael, um, which hit North Florida, um, in 2018 and i'm interested in spaces where sort of like dynamic transformations happen so i kind of went in thinking like oh i'm interested in you know what it may be a typical kind of study of like there's different static groups that i have in mind um i'm sure they all like have different kind of levels of uh trust uh of the government let me like go and figure that out. Let me go and like talk mm. to people. That shifted when every conversation I was having uh, was not about sort of the static dimension of trust. I, you know, I trust the government. I don't trust the government, but rather here's specific moments and here's specific spaces where different players had the chance to either offer solidarity or betray me or my people and here are the specific ways that i view that happening and so this is less about whether or not i trust someone and more about um do people say do people do what they say they're going to do um and this is less about my expectations of what the government provides for me and more about the government has said that it, it's done x y and z for other people um, and that it will do X, Y, and Z for me uh, when I need it. And they didn't, or they did in some cases. And what that looks like when all of those sort of contesting stories are happening in the same space at the same time. And so I'm trying to write a little bit about uh, what people build out of that confusion um, in hurricane settings. Um, on the side, I uh, 
am also kind of throwing myself deeply into work with the ACT UP Oral History Project. And so um, Mm -hmm. ACT UP Mm -hmm. as the uh, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, uh, founded in the late 80s. um, And a lot of their sort of heyday was the late 80s and the 90s, though there's still organizers around now. and this is an organization that was started by LGBTQ people um, during the AIDS crisis to uh, do everything from advocate for policy changes to uh, experimenting and distributing uh, medication, um, either in a regulated or an unregulated way, um, uh, having very public kind of displays like die-ins, for example, um, holding people accountable in public meetings. And this project um, by Jim Hubbard and Sarah Schulman has like 200 interviews that are just out there, video recorded, transcribed, just on the internet for anyone to use. Um, And I don't think urban planners have really like taken advantage of that. And so (laughs) I'm interested in what that kind of LGBTQ organizing looks like outside of New York and San Francisco um, and maybe Boston where I'm at. Um, I'm interested in what that looks like across the South. I'm trying to uncover um, what the spaces of solidarity and trust were uh, for the historic kind of fight over resources for HIV um, AIDS and what that looks like now. Um, And I'm also deeply, deeply, deeply trying to understand what our construct of disaster means um, for people who, you know, every day face physical, bodily, structural threats um, to their existence. So what does it mean that, you know, we, we have these sociological sociological sort of definitions of disaster, but if your day-to-day social process and the infrastructure that keeps you afloat is already constantly sort of in flux and disrupted, then what does a different scale of disruption or flux actually mean for sort of how Mm. you reflect on that in the future and what kind of stories come out of that? Um, Or, and also uh, the other side of the coin is what, what, what does it look like when, you are facing a very real disaster. Um, the HIV AIDS epidemic, you know, especially in the cities, was disastrous um, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, people were dying in the streets left and right. People were going to funerals six times a week. Um, and uh, what does that look like when the rest of the world is kind of just continuing? Um, and your social processes are incredibly disrupted, but maybe no one else's are, or maybe no one else is noticing. Mm. Um, and what does the infrastructure of sort of taking care of yourself and your community look like when that's happening and when you're being visualized? So, you know, when we were preparing for this episode, I kind of realized that actually 
I don't really know anything about the research uh, in disaster studies that has been done into the LGBTQI communities, apart from maybe, you know, a few um, research stories that I've heard from JC Guilard, who did some research in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So somehow, even in the research, right, this is uh, almost an unknown entity. Um, do you feel it's represented at all in disaster <laughs> studies? Do we talk enough about LGBTQI community? Um, definitely not. Um, I, I think I'm really grateful for, um, like I said, like Andrew Whittemore's work, who doesn't do disaster specifically, but does kind of push the question in unconventional ways in planning. Um, I am inspired by, there's a paper called Queering Disasters um, by Domini House, Gorman Murray, and um, McKinnon that uh makes this case they say like hey we gathered five uh five in-depth case studies on lgbtq experiences and disasters um so that's it like that's the state of the sub subfield uh yeah <laughs> what the heck like let's let's talk about how we can craft a path forward um and i think that came out in 2014 so there have been some works since then um I think that Dale and uh, and his team got a significant research grant as well in the last few years in in Australia on the subject, which is encouraging. Yeah, that is encouraging, um, and I think that's another thing where uh, that inspired me, but also scared me um, about even entering graduate school or studying uh, issues related to planning. Is that at, like at the end of every like Andrew Whittemore paper, it says very explicitly like this paper and this project was entirely self-funded yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like what does that look like when um everyone thinks that your work is cool but no one wants to give you money um and you have to be in this sort of like beg people essentially to see that an entire set of communities is worth like knowing about and their experiences are worth unpacking. Yeah, but you know, and it's it is completely a problem for for this particular area, and I think generally for kind of research on marginalized communities, because after all, the funding constraints are set by those who can make those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not only just siloed. Uh, there are also certain topics that I guess are so uncomfortable to discuss that it's easier to just completely cover them and not discuss mm -hmm. them. I want to pick your brain kind of more about the vulnerability of the LGBTQI community. What are the unique factors that create the risk for these communities? You've already alluded to their kind of daily existence that is threatened, right? Because some people just don't get it or don't want to get it. And I think it's getting even scarier in the current political climate. So what are these unique factors of risk? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm first, I, I want to think sort of, of of two sides of the coin that I alluded to earlier and that y'all uh, alluded to um, even before I sort of started rambling, which is sort of in, uh, invisibility on one side of the coin or being made invisible. And the other side is being forced out um, when you don't want to be forced out. So on the subject of invisibility, uh, so in the United States, there was a recent or semi-recent now, um, it started a few years ago, sort of fight over the U.S. Census, the 2020 U.S. Census, which a lot of researchers and community organizers were in some ways looking forward to, uh, there actually being questions that 
get at sexual orientation and gender identity. And there actually being a mechanism that we have to understand how many LGBTQ people and households there are here. Um, and that was shut down by the Trump administration. Um, they were not having that. And so while there are many other organizations trying to get around this and different sort of methods that people use to understand household composition, to estimate um, and then project what LGBT populations um, numbers look like, I think just the issue of not knowing completely, you know, hampers the case that people can make um, for resources and then the types of questions that can be asked in a sort of disaster research context. That And that also, you know, renders our populations, I guess, like invisible and more vulnerable to different forms of exploitation and oppression. The other side um, is this issue of sort of like being forced out. And I think disasters kind of just take everything and throw it in everyone's face at the same time. Um, and so... There are a variety of issues that people experience. There's a paper that came out uh, a couple years ago that kind of looked at LGBT experiences after the Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami and nuclear disaster um, with people's experiences in shelters, right? And so a lot of these spaces immediately mm. following disaster are incredibly gendered. And then they're also predicated on a very, you know, narrow understanding of what a family is and what a family unit and how they move through space. And so many people, um, especially if you're in a jurisdiction where maybe your birth certificate, your identification can cannot be changed legally and say you're trans or say you have a same-sex partner and you're not trying to be out like that, uh, you're being forced out and you encounter many, many violences mm in your process of recovery and maybe it can prevent, you know, whatever our image is of total recovery. And then that's on top of just like the issues of disrupted medical care for people with HIV AIDS, trans healthcare needs, mm. and as well as like LGBT people in prisons who are also dealing with all these issues, but you know, with, a, with much more violence kind of attached to every consequence. Darian, as you know, in our first season, we talked a lot about root causes. I think back to the, the episodes we did with um, Tony Oliver-Smith, and um, it's it's something that just comes up almost every every time we sit down with anybody, um, is we get back to root causes of disaster. And quite often when we, when we talk about root causes, we end up speaking about gender, and quite rightly so, because um, we need to consider the way that patriarchy shapes society, right? But um, unfortunately... We often talk about sex and gender in a binary way. And this, uh, again, like you're saying, excludes LGBTQI experiences. And we rarely discuss sexuality at all when we talk about disaster studies. Um, so why do you think our discourse is so limited? I mean, there's many pessimistic answers I could give about <laughs> the identity of people who um, can, you know, can craft what is counted as discourse and what is counted as rigorous sort of discussion. Um, the optimist in me thinks that many, many people recognize that 
all these issues are super connected, right? Um, they might not have the language of like intersection or intersectionality, yeah. like specific oppressions, but I do think people recognize sort of these layered structural issues and it's just hard. It's just so hard to deal with sometimes. And when you sort of on an abstract level tell people, you know, you can't, you can't deal with poverty without dealing with race and that also is connected to gender and sexuality and then you know all these other things and people are like well yeah i'm just uh such and such who works in the emergency management office of this one <laughs> county i can't upend capitalism so yeah. what's the tea like what do i do yeah. um <laughs> and it's like okay like, maybe you can but like maybe you can't so and so this has come out in some of my work. I did an interview, I did several interviews with like Safer Santa Rosa, um, which is like a quasi public organization in Santa Rosa County, Florida. And they essentially followed what community organizers and scholars were saying. And also I'm sure what they felt in their gut, which was like, let's consider poverty reduction as hazard mitigation. And let's sort of recognize these, as you said, like root causes and it's amazing that that first step, just reframing that and just committing to that reframing and not just paying lip service in a public meeting completely changes. And especially if you get people, other people on board, it changes the landscape of grants you have available to do your work. It changes the landscape of partners that you have to collaborate on projects. And it also narrows down this issue of like, okay, all of these issues are connected and I don't know what to do because I'm one organization. So for that specifically, it's like, all right, let's work with other organizations thinking through poverty reduction and specifically homelessness as we think about our mitigation plan and as we think about our mitigation projects. And you can't deal with homelessness, especially youth homelessness, without recognizing that over 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ people uh, in the United States, which is ridiculous and disgusting right and like clearly highly overrepresented and so that actually narrows things down a little bit in terms of workable things that you can do of like oh so like maybe our program should consider uh working with a credit union and also working with a youth lgbtq shelter and working with some social workers and like let's get something together for our town in florida um, and it doesn't have to be revolutionary. I would love it to be. But this gets at this intersection of root causes um, in a workable way and in a way that changes lives. Yeah, well, and it, it doesn't help when you have a administration that is so, you know, you know, actively trying to work against this kind of progress. Um, mm -hmm. And like, I, I love that you touched on the fact that we need to think about these intersections, about how... Um, LGBTQI rights intersect with other struggles by other groups. And like for somebody like me who experiences all kinds of layers of privilege, other, other people la experience layers of discrimination and some, you know, have certain parts of their identity that are uh, othered or uh, discriminated against. Um, but in, in many ways, they also have privilege. So it's so, it's so hard for, for people to, grapple with that if if it's not part of the conversation that they're hearing but yeah i think mm -hmm. so much of our what we receive in the media and uh, the stories that we that we tell each other are are fairly binary in so so many ways right and it's also easiest to 
feel okay about the work that you're doing and the progress that can be made um, by not working alone. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I know like the, the Gender and Disaster Network, which met up initially in 97 at the Natural Hazards Workshop mm, yeah, uh, and founded by women, uh, has done incredible work and is like such an amazing space of people actually pushing, you know, like, for example, the Trump administration isn't necessarily one person. It's a group of people working yeah. together. <laughs> and so we need to have our own groups of people working together. I don't know, that group and other groups uh, makes me so happy to be working in the space. But I guess uh, here, that's where the question of power comes, right? Um, and unfortunately, very often the stories that are narrated and being told and, you know, the stories that make some people invisible are the stories that are told by, well, dominated, dominating group, which are white, wealthy men. Um, and the way they tell their stories uh, is the way that makes them feel comfortable. So do you think uh, there is a role for different stories that can help us to kind of highlight the root causes, the vulnerabilities, and also the roles of um, LGBTQI communities in, in the space of inequalities and marginalization? How should we talk about this? What, should, what stories should we tell? Yes, yes, yes. I love this question. Um, so I want to first sort of like pull from Fiola Jacobs' work, um, her Black Feminism and Radical Planning paper makes the case that um, a sort of part of a Black feminist approach is leaning on the knowledge generated by a community and leaning on sort of collective stories, even if those stories contest, um, rather than sort of trying to force everything into one specific narrative. And that's like very difficult for people to sort of like wrap their heads around abstractly. So I can think of like a very specific kind of assumption that we all make or that a problemization that doesn't come up in a lot of conversations. So, you know, maybe more recently, there's been popular conversations about collective and individual climate retreat and relocation, often spurred by repeated disaster. It's interesting that, I mean, all the logistics of that even have not been thought through, even for sort of like a mainstream kind of like hegemonic, I don't know, cis straight white man population. Um, but that sort of conversation takes for granted personhood being static from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So for example, if you are someone who lives in a locality that has sort of legal non-discrimination protections, if you live in a locality where your access to healthcare that is related to your identity is dependent on a network of community organizations. And if you are in the locality that kind of recognizes certain changes that you can make legally regarding uh, your gender, your name, things like that, then the idea of relocating just somewhere else safer with, with a lower amount of risk kind of needs to be like understood more deeply, right? Because you can move to a place that suddenly doesn't recognize change birth certificates. Like, what do you do? 
you can move to a place where you don't have access to hormones anymore. You don't have access to an LGBTQ affirming mental health professional. And these questions or these resources that people need and that people have fought for and built where they are um, and they're necessary for their survival are unevenly distributed, even geographically. And so when we sort of talk about like, oh, yeah, people in these coastal cities are definitely going to have to be moving further inland. It's like that literally means death for certain people. So that conversation can't necessarily be framed as mitigating anything for certain segments of the population um, beyond sort of maybe flood vulnerability. And I think digging a little bit more deeply is sort of like maybe a critique of, as researchers anyway, sort of this idea of social vulnerability. And so, and like just pushing a little bit further. I do think there is like not an equal amount of attention, you know, being shown or a light being shown on who, like who is doing this and like what processes are actually oppressing people so the idea of just reframing from like oh elderly people are socially vulnerable lgbtq people and black and brown people are socially vulnerable to like that kind of essentializes that with our identities a little bit actually someone else is doing the vulnerabilizing there is a process at play so let's like name that process so we can deal with it and it's going to be hard it's absolutely going to be hard and so i think these issues of you know degree of sort of citizenship or membership or just humanity changes across geography and that's what i'm trying to look at with my act up oral history project like so what, what do people do when you know outside of these major major cities when they have to when they have to move and then they have to kind of build something for themselves and that's amazing. I think it's absolutely critical to highlight people's capacities. You know? And we talked about it in the first season, uh, but yet we just forget. We forget that people are strong, you know. Um, so, yeah, yay. Thanks for emphasizing this. It's so much more convenient for the wealthy, straight, white cis men that we talked about to, you know, even accept that uh, people are vulnerable, but, you know, it's nothing to do with us. It just you know so i love that you brought that up they they've uh people are made vulnerable you know they're they have risk placed upon them and created for them um and i think that's a really important thing that we have touched on time and again um on the podcast We've been talking to darian alexander williams about lgbtqi experiences of risk and disaster um, as part of our second season, uh, I really think our listeners are going to um, love this episode. Darian, thanks so much. Thank you so much. So thank you all for being with us again this Monday. The next episode will come next Monday. As always, you can find our podcast on wherever you get your podcast from. And please follow us on Twitter at Disasters Deconstructed and on Instagram at Disasters Decon. And also on Discord, if you want to get access to some side stories that we discuss sometimes. Can I throw out one more thing? Please. <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I haven't touched on like researcher positionality. And I just want to say I'm out here as a young, black, queer, Muslim disaster researcher. And uh, we need some more of us out here doing the work. So, But I appreciate everything that people have built um, to let me get to this point.
You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, the illustrious Darian Alexander-Williams on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>